Welcome to Season 1 of Healthier Today, a podcast from AB Sound Productions. I'm your host, Jared Talavera, public health advocate. You'll hear stories of individuals from around the world who have undergone tremendous triumphs to live healthier today. They also offer you lessons to do the same. Let's say you live to 80 years of age. You will spend approximately 26 years of your life asleep. It is no wonder that sleep forms an important part of our lives. A 2019 study led by former NASA sleep scientist Stephanie Romazewski found that in UK medical schools, the average amount of time students learnt about sleep was 3.2 hours. In today's episode, we have Dr. Guy Lesner. He is a British sleep physician and neurology consultant. Dr. Lesner is the clinical lead for one of Europe's largest sleep units, the Sleep Disorder Centre in the UK. His latest book is The Nocturnal Brain. It follows the stories of individuals with various sleep disorders and their journey to getting a diagnosis and treatment. There are hundreds of sleep apps and wearable devices which can monitor your sleep patterns and quality of rest. However, Dr. Lesner has seen a lot of patients in his London hospital who have developed insomnia and anxiety around sleep after using these trackers. Orthosomnia is a disorder where the sufferer becomes hyper-focused on sleep, generally as a result of using sleep trackers. This is just one of the sleep disorders Dr. Lesner examines in his book, The Nocturnal Brain. He also discusses sleep eating, which in an extreme case, caused one of his patients to eat a bowl of bird seeds. In another case, a man with sexomnia was convicted of rape after assaulting his partner while asleep. Then there's the case of Kenneth Parks in Ontario in 1987, who was acquitted for murdering his in-laws in his sleep. Without a doubt, these are extreme cases. They serve to highlight just how complex the human brain is. We have had it drummed into us that eight hours is the optimal amount of sleep. However, the truth is we all function in different ways with different sleep needs. If Dr. Lesner could give his 18-year-old self-advice, it would be this. There is no singular reason why some people experience extremes of sleep disorders and others simply wake to feel refreshed. Dr. Lesner's book, The Nocturnal Brain, uncovers why that is. Who is the main person that first identifies that there is a problem with a person's sleep? Is it the individual? Is it their partner? Is it a health professional? I think it very much depends on what the problem is. So uh, usually for many of the sleep disorders, it's the person, the sufferer themselves. But with some conditions like, for example, sleepwalking or sleep talking or obstructive sleep apnea, it's often the partner that prompts people to go and see a doctor. And if you're lucky enough to see a, a, a family doctor or a general practitioner who recognises that there is significant sleep pathology, then you'll usually be referred on to a, a sleep physician. What are some of the cases that you've come across in which it was difficult for, for say, a regular GP to, to diagnose and to treat? Well, I think that narcolepsy is very difficult for a GP to diagnose confidently sometimes. Uh, I, I think that there are a range of individuals who 
um, uh, exhibit something called parasomnia. So these are unwanted behaviours at night, uh, be that sleep talking or shouting out or acting out their dreams. And, and these can sometimes require a sleep study in order to ascertain. And then there are a range of uh, patients who, for example, have seizures, uh, epileptic seizures, that only arise in sleep. And uh, this really does require some significant expertise and experience in terms of performing the appropriate studies. So with something like sleep talking, is there a, something much more sinister beneath that that's that's causing that sort of pathophysiology something that's causing so that I think, yeah yes i think it very much depends on the nature of the sleep talking because uh, depending on on what you're saying and how you're saying it and this is where some of the expertise is required uh, it can either be a very benign uh, condition called non-REM parasomnias which is really of the same group of conditions like sleepwalking um but uh, later on in life, particularly if that uh, talking is aggressive and it's associated with um, clear dreams of a narrative structure, a plot evolving, it can sometimes indicate a condition called REM sleep behaviour disorder. Now, this is a condition in which the, the paralysis that one would normally expect in dreaming sleep, in REM sleep, uh, because we're actually paralysed in dreaming sleep, we, don't, uh, we are completely unable to move uh, any of our muscles apart from those muscles that move our eyes and allow us to breathe so if you lose the ability to paralyze in REM sleep then that acts, causes you to act out your dreams to shout out to lash out um, occasionally perform some more complex actions and the significance of REM sleep behavior disorder is that it's often associated with other neurological disorders disorders like Parkinson's disease for example right so is there a particular group of people that, that where sleep disorders are more prevalent? Is it more prevalent in people that are older as opposed to people that are younger? I, I think many sleep disorders increase in frequency as we get older. So conditions like restless leg syndrome, conditions like obstructive sleep apnea and insomnia. But, uh, for example, narcolepsy tends to come on typically in uh, in teenage years or in the early 30s and conditions like sleepwalking are much more common in younger individuals than they are in older individuals so sleepwalking and its variants are probably really part of the normal brain development of children and to such an extent that it's probably viewed as normal in, in, in most children. In adults, however, it's much rarer. So it occurs in about one to 2% of adults. Uh, and, and so it's seen as, as, as more abnormal uh, once you get beyond the age of about 20. So what's happening in, in younger populations? Are they outgrowing the, the sleepwalking? Yes, so, so for, for, if you imagine that 75% or even higher uh, proportion of, of, of children will at some point have some form of sleepwalking or night terrors. Uh, and then it only persists in about 1% to 2% of adults. Uh, the vast majority of people will stop doing this once they hit adolescence. Or... What can be affecting people, even in generally healthy people, to have a delayed sleep latency? 
So, so in the MSLT, we're not really looking for a... So the MSLT is, is different from the overnight sleep study. <coughs> the MSLT is, is a test whereby people come in for monitoring overnight to check whether or not there's anything happening in their sleep overnight, and that's something called the polysomnogram. But the MSLT is actually a diagnostic test for narcolepsy, whereby people are uh, given the opportunity to fall asleep four or five times at predefined intervals following a PSG. And we measure how quickly they drop off to sleep and into what stage of sleep they go into. So we're really looking for people who are what we term pathologically sleepy, who are more sleepy than we would expect in the normal population. So, so, but actually, if you don't fall asleep in any of your naps, i.e. have a prolonged sleep latency, that is normal. There's no upper limit of normal. It's just a question of how quickly you fall asleep. With the MSLT, you can either have an, an overdiagnosis or there's, the statistics will say that there's an overabundance, there's um, a huge prevalence of people with with narcolepsy. Which one do you think it is, or is there no clear answer to that? Well, I think that we know that a huge number of factors can give you what appears to be an abnormal MSLT. Um, the commonest reason for that is probably people who are sleep-deprived, and uh, really there is a sizable proportion of individuals who will be who will be apparently excessively sleepy to the levels that we see in narcolepsy if they are sleep deprived. So if you're a shift worker or you're burning the candle at both ends, we know that there is a subgroup of individuals with with depression who are excessively sleepy and will have a very short MSLT as well. Uh, and drugs, uh, for example, uh, there are lots of sedating drugs that will cause your MSLT to be uh, abnormal. So, uh, so an abnormal MSLT in itself is not um, diagnostic of narcolepsy. It needs to be interpreted in the context of what has gone on before and the clinical picture overall. Okay. So say with people who work, work shifts, they work late nights, they can't have a steady sleep routine. What's the next best thing to, to be able to have then for those sort of people? And so the likelihood is that unless you're one of those lucky individuals who can sleep at any time, um, anywhere, that the likelihood is that you're going to be either getting insufficient sleep or poor quality sleep. So if you are on a shift pattern, it's uh, if at all possible, it's best to try and keep that sleep that shift pattern fixed on a more long-term basis because then your circadian rhythm can adapt to to your new shift and to try and get as much sleep as you possibly can what a lot of people do when they're working shifts is they actually end up sleep priming themselves because they are trying to fit in other activities related to family life or social life uh, which is where some of the difficulties occur but if your shift is changing on a very regular basis it's very difficult to try and uh, achieve sufficient good quality sleep. People being sleep deprived, then people aren't going to be able to to work productively, particularly with people who work in um, first response, so your firefighters, your paramedics, police officers. They're they're not going to be able to to work productively. Is this something that that you've considered, say, in your research? with the economic effects of sleep? 
Well, I think that there has been quite a lot of research done about the economic effect of sleep. And, and what you have to bear in mind is that the effects are not only on first responders, but if you think about things like road traffic accidents and absenteeism related to, to insufficient sleep, the lack of productivity related to, um, to, to sleep deprivation, the, the, the costs to the economy are huge. It's not an area that I'm actively involved in research, but there are many people around the world who are interested in that side of things. There's one sleep scientist that I'm particularly fond of, and that's Sherry Ma from Stanford University over in California. And she's doing a lot of um, research in, in athletes and seeing can you get um, performance increases in, in athletic ability from, from sleeping. And what she found was when, when athletes were sleeping as much as 10 hours, they were improving their ability to, to shoot better, improve endurance, improve strength. Is, is sleeping for performance something that regular people can do or is, or is that something that's really only suited for, for that athletic individual so so i think that there is good reason to believe that um sleep is good for cognition it's good for restoration of neurological function but also restoration of physical function as well i think the issue is that we know that for example exercise potentiates slow wave sleep and so for most people, I think uh, that to sleep for 10 hours on a regular basis would be rather difficult to do. But I think to extrapolate that into normal individuals, it really suggests that it gives you an indication of quite how important sleep is for a variety of neurological functions, physical functions and psychological functions. And I guess the key message is to uh, understand and appreciate what it is that sleep does for our for every aspect of our health and uh, to appreciate it and to prioritize it i i would say that i mean that's a, that's a difficult one i would say that that medicine is an incre incredibly rewarding and fascinating um occupation uh, it's a vocation and you've got to be dedicated to it and um enjoy it and yeah, but you need to be absolutely sure that you're doing the right thing because it doesn't come without its challenges. Was medicine something that you considered pursuing when you were 18? Oh, yeah. I mean, I started medical school when I was 17, so I was already firmly ensconced in that path. Um, I, I remember very clearly reading, um, I don't know if you come across The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, thinking that this was what I wanted to do. It was, you know, a fascinating um, illustration of the, the weird and wonderful world of neuroscience and neurology. So I think even, even as a schoolboy, I kind of knew in which direction I wanted to go. And I was very lucky. And in hindsight, I think I was probably rather uh, naive to be so sure about what it was that I wanted to do. But... Um, luckily, um, the reality of it lived up to uh, my expectation of it as a 16-year-old. Mm. 
And at what point did you know that you wanted to go into, into sleep medicine? Well, I, I originally did my PhD in epilepsy. Um, and um, I always thought that I would spend my clinical life being a general neurologist and looking after patients with epilepsy. But um, I was always fascinated with sleep and it was really rather by coincidence when I was an undergraduate and I chose to do a, a, a module in something that was at that time termed physiological psychology and was sent away to write a, an essay on the function of dreaming that I came across a, a, a fairly landmark paper about what we thought that dreaming was about and I thought that this was fascinating. So I was always slightly attracted to the world of sleep, but there is a huge overlap in terms of the um, tools that we use in epilepsy and the tools that we use in sleep to make diagnoses. Uh, there are huge links between epilepsy and sleep clinically. And so, and I was lucky enough to undertake my training in a centre that had one of the uh, best-known sleep centres in the UK, and it was really through that route that I ended up doing more and more sleep and becoming increasingly fascinated, getting a decent amount of sleep. And what would be considered a decent amount of sleep? I think, so everybody gets very fixated about the figure of seven to eight hours. I think that it's important to understand that sleep duration that we require is influenced by genetic factors, and it's also influenced by other factors that affect the quality of our sleep. So the ideal amount of sleep for you is whether or not you are able to roughly feel tired at the same time every night, to wake up at about the same time every morning, and to feel refreshed and uh, alert uh, throughout the day. What is one lesson you took away from this episode? Take a screenshot of this podcast and share it on Instagram. Use the hashtag healthier today and tag me at Jared Talavera. Share this podcast with one person who you think would benefit from it. Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps more people discover Healthier Today. Sign up to the email list to stay up to date on new interviews and articles by going to jaredtalavera.com. This podcast was produced by Andy White from AB Sound Production. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss out on future episodes. Next week, you'll hear from Hans Hagen, Executive Director of the Maui Ola Foundation on how surfing is helping kids and teenagers with cystic fibrosis breathe better. Until next time, here's to you living healthier today.